from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Ross Gallagher. Thank you for downloading this podcast. You're adding to the 20 million downloads this podcast has received over the years, and we appreciate every single one. This week, we're talking Andreessen Horowitz to open its first international office in London. Find out what our panel thinks this means for crypto. HSBC unveils its new HSBC Innovation Banking Unit. We're not too sure about the name. And travel the world with Snoop Dogg via an NFT. Find out all of our panel's most memorable gigs. We get into all this and much more on today's show, so let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages. We'll be back with you shortly. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Hello and welcome to episode 750 of Fintech Insider. We are now well on our way to 1,000 episodes. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Lead here at 11FS, and I am joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my wonderful 11FS colleague, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Ross. What have you been working on this week, Benjamin? Anything interesting? We're doing some really interesting work looking at commercial banking and trying to look at all of the areas where companies are struggling with inefficient, outdated processes and all the challenges that that creates and the sort of operational challenges, the inefficiencies, and even, you know, driving certain companies to the wall because, you know, they're just unable to get paid fast enough by their customers. So we're looking at all of that and looking at all the opportunities for fintechs um, and looking at all the great fintechs that are fixing problems in those areas. So really, really interesting, huge, but fascinating topic. I was going to say, yeah, it's huge, enormous, yeah. but hugely worthwhile. Ocean boiling. Yeah, exactly. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Benjamin. Now, up next, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Anna Herrera, uh, Senior Editor, Crypto for Bloomberg News. So, Anna, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Um, maybe you can just tell our listeners or at least remind our listeners about you and uh, your newsbeat at, at Bloomberg. Yes. So now I'm an, as you said, I'm a, a senior editor on the crypto team, but um, I've been coming on the show for many years. I think I was on episode like one, two or three, something like that. 
because um, I used to cover fintech first at Dow Jones and then I went to Reuters where I was chief fintech correspondent. So I keep saying I want to broaden my beat and I've like made it even more specialist with, with crypto. But, you know, I'm always following the broader digital finance landscape. And it's always great that you keep coming back and sharing your uh, your expert insight as well, Anna. So thanks for uh, thanks for always doing that. Episode one, two or three to episode 750. I mean, that's quite impressive. Um, and finally, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Bobby Second, CEO of Wisetack. So Bobby, thank you for joining us. Maybe again, you can give the listeners just a bit of a, an intro into you and also into Wisetack. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, to introduce myself, uh, my personal background is close to two decades in FinTech from before it was called FinTech and it spans both online payments and online lending. Uh, in Wisetack, the company actually also spans payments and lending. Uh, we are a payment option uh, via which consumers can pay over time in installments for large purchases. And where we differentiate and where we bring the technology is that we're integrating our experience into software providers, which let us reach lots of smaller businesses who otherwise wouldn't have been able to offer this as a payment option. Um, and the other part is that many of these businesses uh, sell in person. So these are real world businesses like uh, services around the home, like electrical repairs or plumbing or car repair or, or dental. And via our technology, the consumer can pay over time for a large unexpected expense. Awesome. Yeah. And I know you guys have got some interesting news that we'll talk about a little bit later on as well. So uh, thanks for coming in to share that. And I love that you were sort of like fintech before fintech was cool. All right. Well, that's our guest panel. Um, with that, let's get into the news. Now, our first story comes from Reuters uh, with a headline, Andreessen Horowitz to open its first international office in London. So US venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, also known as A16Z, a major cryptocurrency and fintech investor, will set up its first international office in London. The London office, set to open later this year, aims to work with universities in the UK and support the development of blockchain technologies and startups. The decision follows talks with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and other authorities for months, the company has said. The move comes at a time when the US Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, has been cracking down on the crypto industry, suing cryptocurrency exchanges Coinbase and Binance last week for allegedly breaching its rules. So Anna, as someone who, as you said, you're covering the space quite closely, it probably makes sense to come to you first on this one. Um, I guess the first question, what do you think this means uh, for the for the US and for the UK? Is this kind of a US's loss and the UK's gain? I mean, this is really interesting. So I covered this too. Um, and so as an editor, sometimes I cover things, sometimes I edit them. And in this situation, I was actually speaking to the people involved. So I spoke to Chris Dixon and I also spoke to Andreessen Horowitz, uh, crypto funds head of policy, who's Brian Quintez, who was the CF, who was a commissioner at the CFTC. So obviously when, when we heard this was happening, our natural thought was like, oh, Clearly, it's 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 a move away from the U.S. given what's going on. And they were very cautious to say, you know, we've been actually working on this for quite some time. We're still net positive on the U.S. But obviously, I, we are seeing more firms trying to, I guess, especially if they are focused on crypto. And, you know, I don't know if you mentioned this in the intro, but the, the move is being led from their crypto division, which is A16Z. 
um, crypto. Um, and they're setting it up from, like, they're the ones that are moving ahead with it. And, and it's it's clear because they're saying that, you know, the regulatory environment here is much clearer. And, it, it, and you know, that's kind of what they're championing in the U.S. So it, it is kind of a massive win, I feel, for, for, for fintech in general in, in the U.K. And I'd noticed... Um, recently, it seems like the mood is a bit more calmer and quieter than it was maybe several years ago when fintech became cool. And we've seen, especially led by crypto and Web3, that France has taken a lead in attracting companies, which you would have not expected. Um, and so this seems like it's the first major like big win for the government in trying to attract um, the, the, the companies here and to get the ecosystem sort of revived since, you know, Brexit and and I mean essentially since Brexit and then COVID. Yeah, I mean it's hard not to see it from a 16C's perspective as being a little bit reactionary in terms of what we talked about in the intro with the SEC sort of cracking down on the crypto industry. It's hard not to see it as a win for the UK. How much do you think this is a win as well for like the UK government in terms of actually courting a 16Z? I'm I mean, it's a massive win, I think. You know, you don't get the prime minister of a country on, like, press releases quite often for, like, a company opening a headquarter. And they are a big, like, company, but they're not, you know, it's not going to be, like, 6,000 jobs, right? Like, that's generally when you get governments commenting on press releases. It's probably going to be very few jobs uh, as if it's a VC company. Um, but it is, I think it, it does come after people flagging. And, and we've done stories ourselves saying, you know, the government says they want crypto here, but crypto firms are having a massive, massive issues. The fact that there is no regulatory regime yet, you know, um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz was saying that, that they like the the clear regulatory regime here, but there's actually not, not one yet. It's going to be passed. And whereas in Europe, we've had MICA approved. So for once, Europe is a bit faster than the UK. And, you know, Circle went to France, Binance went to France, Crypto.com chose France. There's like been a steady stream of companies opting for France. And if you do, do go there and, you know, go to their crypto events, there is that buzz that you felt in London, you know, a few years ago. And so, you know, the fact that they managed to get arguably one of the most influential tech VCs um, to come here and set up their base here says a lot about the fact that, you know, the UK is still open for business, I guess. But we'll, we'll you know... Uh, and and I think you know we talk about their office, but the fact that they are launching an accelerator here is really interesting. Like how how it's been a while since there's been an accelerator launch um, in the in London, a fintech one. You know they were quite popular around 2014, and then there ha there haven't been any new ones. Maybe there were too many. I don't know. But the fact that they are doing their crypto accelerator here, and it was in Santa Monica this year, and next year they'll be doing it in London. It, it means that companies will come here, so there will be some new crypto companies. Um, or Web3 companies, blockchain companies coming to London. So that generally will create a bit of a buzz, even if it's for a few months. And maybe those companies were thinking of being based in the US and it's just not the right moment, right? Because if the SEC is saying every token essentially is an unregistered security and you're launching a new protocol with a token, you probably don't want to do it right now in the US. It might not be a great idea. So, you know, maybe they come here for the accelerator, they stay here, they go... Hopefully, for, for the government, they don't go to France right after. But, you know, it is it is a big win, at least image-wise. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. Benjamin, one of the things that I thought was was really interesting, what, what Anna was saying, is it, this isn't going to bring thousands of jobs directly, necessarily. 
to the UK, but do you think it gives the UK a real advantage in terms of playing catch up to markets like France in attracting some some newer sort of fintech um, and, and blockchain businesses? No, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to dis- dismiss it. I mean, and- Andreessen Horowitz is obviously a hugely respected firm. It's very influential. Having Andreessen Horowitz open an office in London is a big deal. It's a big deal for London's fintech scene. Um, it, you know, it's just one more reason for you know for, for other people to visit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'm sure they will encourage uh, crypto investment. I'm sure they will encourage lots of interesting businesses. So I think it's great. But you know, in the bigger picture of you know UK versus France you know I think Anna's making some really interesting points about uh how regulation in the EU has moved faster I still find it odd talking about Europe as if it's as if the UK is not part of it but that is in effect what Brexit has done of of driving um the UK out so yes I think the British government has got a ton of work to do having you know, I mean, the current government has supported Brexit and has been, you know, a big, big champion of Brexit. So having said to the British people, hey, you know, there are all these advantages of being outside the European Union. Well, what are those advantages? Um, so the British government has got a lot of work to do to make London as attractive a place to do it, for doing business as it was, um, you know, five plus years ago. So do I think this is a big deal? No. Do I think it's a small thing, a small step on a long road? Yes. I think there's like an opportunity, and I agree that there is an opportunity, though, because MICA was passed. It still has to be implemented. And as we know, in financial rules, the implementation is, is very key. So every country or generally they might mess it up in the implementation phase. And the not, UK is just one country that has to approve some rules. And arguably they have more urgent things to deal with than crypto, like cost of uh, you know living and really? the fact that they probably want to be reelected and all that, which is absolutely more important clearly to them I would hope but they can actually push the rules through and then they can say come here we have a regime it's faster the issue is then you still need a license in Europe to, to passport through Europe and I, I don't know that they're going to get the equivalence or it seems like it would be a huge political factor so and I have been you know reflecting on the fact that you know, five years ago for many companies like Circle, Binance, it would have been a no-brainer to set up their EU base in the UK because that's where the talent is. Like historically, finance has been here. And now the fact that they're con- they're opting for France, it just shows very clearly like what the effects of Brexit are on a finance. Like, because there aren't, it's, it's a new financial sector where people are getting licenses now. And so, you know, they, they have to pick somewhere and they're picking a country in Europe because they can't, you know, do it here. Yeah. No, and 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 actually, that's that's such an important point, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we've seen sort of like a lack of a, a sort of investor appetite for some of the bigger raises that we've typically seen in the UK, particularly in the fintech sector. Um, we've actually seen, I think, sort of blockchain drop off in the sort of like the, the, the sort of crypto, even in the sort of buzzwordy um, context in the UK. But Bobby, I'm I'm interested to uh, to sort of get the the US perspective on this, right? Because the UK is just one side of the coin in this story. Uh, from my perspective, it's a it's a logical move by a by a large player to expand in a, in another large market. So it, it makes sense to me, but but I also would trust uh, Anna and your opinions on crypto more than more than myself, probably. Well, I guess Bobby, sort of, it'd be good as well to get your thoughts on um, you know, a sixteen Z as a, a sort of a, a big VC. I mentioned about how. Um, it's been a difficult market from a, a sort of VC and, and from the perspective of trying to raise. I guess just generally, what does what does someone like an A16Z coming into a market like that? Do you think they're going to have um, 
a material impact, I suppose. It should. It should. It is a, uh, they're deploying substantial, substantial amounts uh, based on my experience on how things have gone the last few years. Uh, something like that makes a difference. They, they also bring a unique perspective. So I think, I think it'll make a difference. Yeah, no, completely agree. Do you think it's going to, um, Anna, do you think it's going to like, I suppose, just sort of like drive crypto and, and sort of blockchain back to the, the forefront of that? conversation is it going to have a material impact there i'm not sure i mean crypto is such a weird beast um that sometimes you don't really know what's going on why like maybe more most of the time so i don't know but it's definitely like it's quite striking that on the same week or like the week after the U the us is suing coinbase and 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 binance and there can't be a more like we don't like crypto attitude here you have governments and it's not just the UK, but, you know, as I said, like in France that are actually doing stuff to sort of welcome it. And, you know, they're saying we're welcoming it with the right protections, but it's such a big difference that it's quite striking and like confusing. And then you actually see what's going in the markets and the prices are down. Lots of people lost their money this year. And it, it, it's just really interesting. It's to see you know, whether now that there are rules coming in, in, in you know, in, in various jurisdictions, also in Asia, whether now like there's an environment for crypto to grow in a more sort of sustainable way, whether it will grow or if it only grows when it's it's more of a wild west. So we'll see. I'm sh surely there'll be a little bit more talk about it here if if you'll have 26 companies coming and setting up. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. And yeah, sorry, Benjamin, so jump I, in. I, I was going to throw to you the same I question anyway. I was just going to say, I think it's just a, a, a coincidence of timing that, you know, the, the um, SEC has, has clamped down on these firms. I'm sure the Andreessen Hollerets deal has been underway, you know, in planning for, for, for months, if not years. Um, you know, is the US really suddenly anti-crypto? Or is it just that the SEC is saying, look, we have laws and we are enforcing those laws, right? If you encourage people to invest in securities, you have to abide by securities laws. And, you know, everybody who's been saying, oh, crypto assets are not securities, well, they kind of are, and they are securities. You know, there's an established test in the States called the Howey test, um, you know, and, and crypto is a security. Yeah, I, I'm not... I, like, and I know you far from me that, for but, arguing yeah. whether it's not or it is like I, and I'm not like I just have crypto in my because like we cover it not because I'm a defender of the industry obviously given my role but what's striking is you know Coinbase was trading these tokens three years ago right these ICOs it. that were listed in the list of in the lawsuit right there's coins that were issued in the previous rally and no like they were there was no action taking against them. So while yes, they were always a security according to the SEC, n there was no enforcement against mm. it. So the the mood right now is definitely more of a crackdown than before, right? And you might might make sense why you would want to do it now, right? If you do it during a rally, then investors might say, "Hey, I was making money and now I've lost it because you came in and you said that it was illegal and I lost my money because you." you stepped in. Whereas if you do it now, the firms might have a little bit less money on the side to fight you in a lawsuit. And, you know, the investors are already hurt. But there's, I, I don't think there's any other way, like, it's clearly more of a less friendly regulatory environment. Or at least, you know, you now realize that they've been saying it and they will come after you if you do not follow the rules that have been there since however long the Howey test has been there, which was about orange groves, I guess, right? So it's not like suddenly <laughs> they became securities, I guess the SEC would say they've always been. It's just now you can't say, oh, we did our own assessment and we like, 
it's just not a great I mean, I, I would imagine you're a little bit more more scared, right, to do business if you're there now. If you want to issue a new token, you're probably trying to figure out what to do. And that's what they're saying, right? That's what the firms are saying. They're all, you know, saying that the, they're fighting back. You know, Coinbase sued the SEC before the SEC sued Coinbase. So it's not like the chillest of environments there. No, and it's definitely one I think that we uh, will keep an eye on. It's such an interesting space, definitely one we could dive into for hours. But sadly, I am going to move us on to our... Uh, Next story, which might just be equally as interesting. Let's uh, let's find out. So it comes from CNBC. Headline is HSBC builds innovation division from the bones of collapsed SVB UK. So HSBC has unveiled its new HSBC innovation banking unit following its 11th hour rescue of the UK subsidiary of failed Silicon Valley Bank. HSBC acquired the London-based SVB unit for a pound after its parent company suffered a run on its assets fueled by customer fears over the bank's solvency. The UK government and Bank of England facilitated the purchase in a bid to protect deposits. HSBC said Monday that its innovation banking unit launched at London Tech Week will bring together SVB UK and freshly formed teams in the US, Israel and Hong Kong as it focuses on tech and life science enterprises. Now, we put out the question on our 11FS LinkedIn page, are HSBC right to drop the Silicon Valley Bank name? And with more than 320 votes, 80% said yes, it's tarnished, and 20% said no, it still means something. Um, so a pretty resounding result on that one. Um, maybe Benjamin, come to you first uh, on this. What do you think about the result of our uh, Twitter poll and, and, and the story in general? It's an interesting one saying that it's tarnished because, I mean, clearly the, you know, the bank hit enormous troubles, but so far as I know, there still isn't a lot of malfeasance, right? There was nothing bad. They just, you know, they they made a big mistake, right? a huge mistake in investing in, in treasuries and so on. But as far as I know, there wasn't actually any malpractice. You know, we've seen other banks go wrong because of greed, you know, because of all sorts of reasons. I, anyway, so I think it's a, it, perhaps a tad unfair on, on Silicon Valley Bank saying it's tarnished. I think as a brand in Europe, it only makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, the Silicon Valley is obviously very strongly associated with that part of California and therefore with innovation and so on. But that means a little bit less in, in the UK and Europe. I think Silicon Valley Bank had done a ton to really support startups. Um, and I think it's it's sad to see that sort of legacy going away. But I can see that it didn't really make sense to keep the Silicon Valley Bank name in the UK. I think the decision in the States might turn out to be different. Um, because obviously it has a stronger sort of resonance both geographically and, and historically. So I think it's 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 sad, but probably inevitable and probably the right decision to to drop Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, to drop the name. What are you um, interested? In what Benjamin was saying about um, how this might play out in the US. What's your uh, what's your view on this? Well, well I, I agree with Benjamin completely. It's probably the right decision in Europe. In the US, SVB had a great brand and was a great partner to a lot of companies, including us. We didn't have all our business with SVB, but we worked with them on a number of things and they were great. And uh, from from what I'm seeing, that existing team largely remains in place and things operate as before. So in a way, it's quite possible that the bank formerly known as SVB continues to exist and do a very similar role in the in the ecosystem. And I think that's actually what many folks are hoping for because it, they were a great partner and I think many of us want to keep working with them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, that point about 
legacy is so interesting, right? They were such a key player in that sort of like fintech ecosystem. Um, Anna, what do you what do you think? What's your sort of reaction to this? And I suppose that that point about um, legacy. What do you think? What do you think about uh, Silicon Valley Bank's legacy? My initial thoughts when I when I saw this was like, oh no, why are they? You know, you don't really associate HSBC with innovation necessarily, if, especially if you're a startup, I guess, and you're working with them. So naturally, maybe you would think, you know, keeping SVB would be better. But then when people started pointing out the fact that well, it did sort of go under, then it kind of makes sense that you might not want to keep it by association. But yeah, I guess it depends who your, your target market is. If it is a company like Bobby's and, and he would be fine with keeping the relationship, he hopes they actually are the same people and the same business and he had a great experience, then he, they might not mind. I would imagine that they've done a number of like studies before just changing the name or meetings. Um, so I'm sure maybe they, they thought it out, right? I like I like the difference between studies and meetings. It's like yes, your studies yeah. you meetings kind of think, will have happened for yeah, sure, right? Like exactly. there will have been meetings. No, exactly. Um, but it is look, it's an interesting point, right? Um, what you bring up about like the the role that SVB played, and in many ways was quite a unique role, and the permission that it had to partner with quite innovative brands. Benjamin, do you think there is a tension there? That all now being housed within. HSBC, do they have that same permission? Yeah, huge. And I, I, I think this is the huge issue. And in many senses, the brand matters much less than what happens um, what happens to the people and what happens to the ethos and what happens to the culture, right? There's a reason that Silicon Valley Bank was able to succeed. You know, why on earth was a bank from California able to come to London and it'll come to the UK and win you know, hundreds and hundreds of customers? It was able to because there was an underserved need in the market because lots of startups were not getting the service they needed from the established traditional UK banks that were looking at these small startups and saying, we wouldn't even give you a personal loan, let alone lend to your random crypto idea. Um, So there was a cultural challenge in the big UK banks that that they didn't need to lend to lots of small startups. And of course, that ultimately harms the British economy. So you need um, banks that are willing to take on a certain amount of risk, willing to invest in startup businesses. And Silicon Valley Bank had that culture, had that network, etc. So the question is, can HSBC let that organization thrive at arm's length with the backup of HSBC's capital, or do they absorb it into the business that was kind of neglecting that market? So in HSBC, so huge, it's very hard to see the, the sort of the Silicon Valley Bank UK bit really changing HSBC's culture. So do they leave it at arm's length and let it operate successfully with their capital? Or do they try and pull it in and probably kill it. But they only spend a pound on it, you know, so if they kill it, it's not no big loss for them. But I think that's going to be the real question of can HSBC let that culture of really trying to focus on startups thrive? But I guess also big banks have a very different appetite towards risk. And we saw yeah. after the financial crisis, so many small businesses were dropped, right, as clients, and, and no one was really lending to them in general. So, like, you know, they, if they do decide to incorporate them and don't give them independence, as you're saying, they might just decide like, oh, there, like, there'd be some like risk committee and some like 20 compliance officers. And they'll say like, maybe not even, let's not even go towards crypto because I, I suspect that might not be like even considered, but like some other more like, in, 
you know, some other startup and they'll say, is it worth the risk banking them, giving them a loan? Like, like we, we have these giant clients that are like vanilla corporates that are massive. Let's just stick with them because it's just better, you know, and the cost of capital is going up. So like they might not want to take the risk. So the question then is, is there another British bank that starts stepping into that gap? Does does a Starling, uh, Revolut's not a bank, but, you know, does uh, does Oak North, I mean, who, who's, which other banks step into that market and, and fund startups? Yeah, that's a yeah. bit of a tragic question in these times, I think, funding of startups. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> It is. It is tragic. And actually, especially Anna, in the context of what you were saying, it's hard to see how you preserve what was good and what was unique about Silicon Valley as it existed outside of HSBC. But then when you try and bring it closer and closer, naturally, you're going to lose some of that. Bobby, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to get your views on maybe that US perspective. But what do you think it is that made Silicon Valley Bank unique? What gave them the edge in terms of the role that they ultimately played in the fintech ecosystem? Is it that they were just super specialists. What do you think it was? So they did. They did a great job at something that's difficult for a bank, which is to work with small companies that are constantly changing. And for us, what we saw the two things that made a big difference. One was actually technology. So we uh, we use and continue to use SVB uh, for ACH processing, and they have better technology than other bank partners around in an automatic fashion, doing these payments and other types of payments. Uh, and the second part <clears throat> is the relationship management and just the processes they have that allowed us, when we needed something from the bank, to quickly turn around decisions, add new products, and give us answers. And so I think that combination was unique. They made it work and they did a great job. Yeah, it certainly feels unique. I guess, Benjamin, coming back to you, because there's two sides to every story, right? And I suppose we're in a difficult um, climate right now, just generally, and, and, and I suppose in the, in the banking industry more specifically. I suppose HSBC as a brand, it's a, it's a strong brand, it's a recognized brand. Is that going to give people confidence? What's the upside? The upside is, yes. I mean, HSBC is huge. Um, it's got a fantastic international network. There is an enormous amount of capital. It's a very, very strong bank. It has very robust processes, to Anna's point. Some of those processes may be a little bit slow. Um, so, you know, HSBC is not going anywhere. Um, what this economy needs in the UK, but every economy needs, is thriving entrepreneurial businesses. The people who've got the get up and go to start a new business, pursuing their passion, those are the people who create jobs. And you've got to have a banking system that is able to fund them. So, you know, my hope is that HSBC can look at this and say, wow, Silicon Valley Bank, those people achieved something we couldn't do. They built a little business, you know, it's little in HSBC terms. They built that business. I hope they look at that and say, let's learn from them and let them do their thing. Um, and I hope they don't squash it because that would be a real tragedy. Yeah. I think it's nice to finish up on a note of optimism. So I'm uh, I'm going to close us there. We'll go to a, a quick break and we'll be back with you very shortly. 
A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insights show. What is Anne Bowden's legacy in FinTech? To mark the Starling CEO's recent announcement that she's stepping down from the company she founded back in 2014, we've opened up the archives to bring you an interview with Anne, which is new to the FinTech Insider podcast feed. David Embreer is joined by Bowden back at the start of the pandemic to discuss how she's keeping staff together, remote working, and how to help vulnerable customers. Go check that podcast out wherever you got this one. Now let's get back to the news. And this story comes from American Banker with a headline, Citizens Bank and Wisestack announce partnership to expand embedded pay-over-time solutions. Wisestack, a lending platform specializing in installment financing options for in-person businesses, has partnered with U.S. Bank Citizens Financial Group on a new payment solution. The solution is a product focused on payment solutions for home services, such as repairs and home improvements, as well as car repair and dental work. The customers can apply to use installment options to pay for expensive in-person services, which, according to Wisestack data, average around $4,000. This is embedded in a business's own platform. According to the press release, customers who qualify will benefit from, quote, attractive rates and low monthly payments, as well as flexible payment terms. So, Bobby, it's really great to have you here to discuss this. Congratulations on the partnership. Um, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how the payment solution works in practice, like talk us through a transaction, who the service is for. Yeah, let me uh, step back on how Wisetac works uh, briefly. So as I mentioned, we integrate payovertime options into software. So we're an embedded payments and lending provider. And we have a network of integrations with software providers. Those software providers have businesses using that software to run their business and through that software businesses are accepting payments fulfilling orders and doing all kinds of things um so the example would be uh you uh your air conditioning goes out and uh, it needs to be replaced and it's going to cost eight thousand dollars because you have a huge house in arizona where it gets really hot in the summer and so a technician will come to your place and, and they will provide a quote uh, exactly how much it's going to cost and, and how they're going to do the replacement. And on that quote, uh, why stack be available to pay over time and low monthly payments over anywhere from three months to five years? And Wisetech will handle that installment payment experience for the consumer, pay the merchant directly, and then the consumer will repay the loan over time. Uh, so we have a network of of merchants, tens of thousands of merchants that use Wisetag for this. And Citizens is going to be integrated into that payment experience so that Wisetag continues to do what we do, handling that experience. And through 
through us, through our platform, citizens can originate the financing and the merchant will still get paid as before. And now the consumer can repay citizens back for their loan. So that way we get to focus on what a fintech does best, which is a great user experience, great integration, great technology. And then citizens gets to do what they do best, which is uh, originate financing with a, a very low cost of capital. Yeah, really nice. And I mean, I guess giving um, those end consumers that added flexibility to pay for these sort of like high ticket items um, over time. It'd be good maybe if you could tell us a little bit about um, sort of the background, like where the vision came from, like the problem you saw on the market that you guys ultimately went out to try and solve. Yeah, there were a few problems uh, that we're able to solve. One is we're making it really easy for small businesses to offer these payment options. Uh, in the last few years, many large retailers, especially e-commerce retailers, are offering installment payment options. It is way easier for a large business with a finance department and technology team to offer these things. It's much harder for a small business. And so we make it incredibly easy. And the parallel is similar to credit card payments. 20 years ago, it was actually difficult for a business to offer credit card processing in the U.S., and it's now incredibly easy because there's a lot of providers who've made it very, very seamless to, to offer that. And we're doing the same thing for installment payment options. Um, the other thing we differentiate on is the embedded piece where we make it easy for developers to embed us into a software platform that is already working with tens and hundreds of thousands of businesses. And that's how we reach uh, these smaller merchants who wouldn't have otherwise had this option for their customers. And then the last piece, obviously, is making it really easy for the consumer so that they can benefit from uh, from from these options. Yeah, in many ways, it's kind of win-win-win, right? And like, as you said, like super scalable with that embedded piece, which I think is so key. Um, one thing that I'd be interested just to get uh, your thoughts on, the, the sort of distinction between what we called a sort of pay over time feature versus obviously what we're seeing quite a lot of in the market right now, which is that sort of buy now, pay later piece. What I what I find is that usually buy now, pay later is used for the pay in four type of products, which is uh, every two weeks you'll make four payments to pay off the purchase. And because of how it's set up, it, that tends to be for smaller dollar amounts. Uh, the average for some of the providers uh, is in the $100 to $200 range in the U.S. Uh, we like the term pay over time because our, our average loan is $4,000. It lasts uh, over a year or two, and we're serving mainstream, mainstream customers, uh, whereas I think for the e-commerce BNPL options, the, the clientele tends to be a younger demographic, and it tends to be tilted in, in certain uh, verticals. Nice. That makes so much sense. So thank you for explaining all of that um, in such detail. Um, Anna, I'll come to you on this one. What was your, uh, what was your reaction to, to the story and to, um, to Bobby's explanation? It's really interesting. I was chatting to a colleague um, the other day who's just bought a, um, a house and she's redoing, I think, the bathroom. And all of a sudden there was issues as there's always issues with renovations. And so she's saying, oh, we have to you know, spend more. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have buy now, pay later for that? And it seems like a perfect plug, but it was actually what I, <laughs> we were talking about. But I find it interesting because unless I'm like just losing it because of age uh, and time covering the sector, but 
At the very beginning, buy now, pay later was more about bigger purchases, right? It was targeted as at millennials when we were still young. Um, like, you know, you wanted to buy a Casper mattress or like these bigger ticket online items or your holiday, pay for a, hol- a flight and you couldn't. And then it went kind of into more like expensive shoes. And then now it's gone back to essentials. But it's interesting that it's going back to, you know, more essentials, but more like larger essentials where installments make sense uh, for, I guess, a variety of reasons. I guess it's interesting, you know, um, what the alternative is here. Is it people that tend to pay, I would imagine in the U.S. will maybe resort to credit cards. And so then the interest that, uh, is gets really high because they, you know, tends to be a big balance that carries over because you're using it more like a form of loan rather than something you pay back every month. So if, if you're, you know, the alternative is that then, which is often what buy now, pay later firms will say. Um, and it's also interesting, I found interesting, given the environment now that, you know, you've chosen to be the tech providers, but the actual, you know, loan will come from a bank. Because I guess that's some of the, one of the issues that people raise about buy now, pay later is that, you know, the, the cost of capital is going up and there's a risk people are less likely to repay their loans now. And if a crisis of stronger, like financial crisis comes and so firms are, have pressure on both sides, right? How do they get their own capital to lend? And then will their, will default start going up, right? So, you know, um, obviously I, I have, I'm looking at Bobby. So even if I did think something more, more skeptical, I would never say, no, I'm just joking. But, but you know, I, I, I found it sort of fit with different things that we, we were discussing at work. Yeah, there, there are two trends that are driving the adoption of, of installment payments. One is... It is actually a more transparent option than credit cards because as I'm swiping my card, I'm not going to know how much I've put on there until the statement comes at the end of the month. And I also have no idea if I don't pay it off, how much it's going to cost me. I just know it's expensive. Whereas with the installment payments, you know exactly how much is your monthly payment, you know exactly how much you're paying in interest. So it is it is better real-time information on the cost. And the other piece is younger people in the US these days, uh, the majority don't have a credit card. And part of that is after the financial crisis, there was regulation that that prohibited uh, marketing credit cards on campus in, in universities. And so folks are graduating from school uh, these days and they don't have a credit card. So, so they actually need something like that if they're gonna buy their mattress for the first place after they've left uh, their campus housing. And, and I think those two uh, are driving massive adoption, which is why uh, people are becoming increasingly more aware that I, I shouldn't be revolving on the credit card. There, there is a better option. Yeah, okay. I completely agree. Sorry. Oh, I want. No can I can I just deviate from my role Please here and, and ask ask the question? Is it is it mostly sort of with with interest or like how did you decide to? Or is it up to the bank to decide what kind of they go for if with interest without interest? Because in this case, they're not the merchant, so. You know, it's it starts from uh, there. There are always zero percent options that are available to people with with great credit, and then there are interest bearing options for folks with less than great credit. So it is risk based, and because it is a real time decision, we know exactly at the time they're making the purchase what's their credit, what's their situation, and and that's another reason why it is overall a lower cost because. Uh, as you may be familiar with credit cards, there's there's this inherent um, loop where they're expensive because people 
wait to use them in in the worst possible time and so then they'll rack up the bill when when they're in a tough situation which then makes it necessary for it to be an expensive option so it's a vicious it's a vicious circle and it's much easier to to actually have an accurate assessment of what is someone's credit if it's not an open line of credit that can be used as a last resort benjamin we've absolutely raced through the story but as our sort of resident i guess embedded finance expert i'm really keen to get your uh, thoughts on this one so sadly it's the final word but well i'll just say i, re- I really love it um I, you know so congratulations um probably to you, you and your your team um i think this is great because it's got a real social purpose to it so when you're lending to somebody because they need to repair their car or they need a, a new washing machine or they need some dental work, you know, those are really crucial things. If I don't if I don't have a car, I can't get to work. If my washing machine doesn't work, oh my God, how do I, you know, how do I get my family into clean clothes? Um, you know, if I've got something wrong with my face, I just can't, you know, I can't concentrate or whatever. You know, these are real, these are emergencies. And a lot of people don't have $4,000 or $8,000 or $2,000 just sitting around. So I think this is fantastic. And I'm a huge believer in embedded finance. By putting this at the point of sale, you're giving people more options. You're giving them better options. As you say, Bobby, you're giving them clearer options. Um, As you were talking, I was remembering, I I used to work for an American company. And years ago, they uh, wanted us all to travel over to this offsite in America. And they just assumed that all of these Europeans could just buy plane tickets. But of course, a plane ticket can cost, you know, $8,000, sorry, not $8,000, $1,000 or whatever. And we had lots of younger employees young European employees, they didn't have credit cards and they didn't have a thousand euros to buy a plane ticket. And, and the Americans just sort of assumed, well, well, everyone has a credit card. But of course, not everyone does have a credit card, to your point, Bobby, um, and, and fewer and fewer do. So I love this because this to me is exactly what installment payments should be being used for because a lot of buy now, pay later is sort of just kind of driving consumerism, you know, just get that thing you want faster. Now you don't have to wait without necessarily very much credit rating and credit scoring to really see, do people really need to spend that money? Have they got that money? So I love this, um, really looking at people's credit and actually lending money to people for things they really, really need. So um, best wishes uh, for success to, to you and your team, Bobby. Thank you. Yeah, no, completely agree. You don't get much more of a resounding um, endorsement than that, Bobby. So congratulations. Um, and thanks again for coming on to uh, to talk to us about it. Um, All right, with that, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which comes from uh, the Associated Press. Nasdaq to buy financial software company Adenza in $10.5 billion cash and stock deal. So Nasdaq is buying Adenza, a company that makes software used on Wall Street for $10.5 billion in cash and stock. The acquisition by Nasdaq from owner Toma Bravo, an investment company, includes $5.75 billion in cash and 85.6 million shares of NASDAQ common stock. NASDAQ CEO, Adena Friedman, has been pushing the company further into tech, expanding beyond its role as a marketplace for trading that is reliant largely on trading volumes to thrive. Adenza was created through the combination of treasury management firm Calypso and regulatory software vendor Axiom SL, and provides, quote, end-to-end trading, treasury, risk management, and regulatory compliance platforms. Um, Benjamin, maybe I'll come to you first on this mm. with the first question. So is this the return of big acquisitions or just an outlier? 
Just in passing, we've invited one of Bloomberg's premier journalists onto this, and you keep reading out stories from the Associated Press, from Reuters, yes, and so on. Yes, especially the first one, which I had written myself, and you, you, you like read the one from where I used to work before. So it's like been sitting here trying I, not to say anything. But thank you for Anna, like. If it's if it's any consolation, our producers have just apologised in the uh, in the feed. So. It's okay. It's okay. No, that's fine. It's fine. You let's, know. let's say it's balanced. It's like as if I'm you know used to play for Man United and you're. I'm the Man City, and you're bringing up the Man United. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not I that. Think, it's I think fine. if you there's no paywall, I play, think there's no there's if, no. if you used to play for Manchester United, you got bigger problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess so. Yeah. It's it's hard to call whether this this deal marks you know the return of big acquisitions. You know there are always going to be outlier acquisitions. There's always going to be opportunities in a market because particular companies that just happen to be for sale for whatever reason because somebody needs to make an exit because they've hit a bump in the road, whatever. What really strikes me about this deal is it's just odd. Um, the, the the strategic logic isn't clear. Like, what what's the fit between these businesses? Is this just the Nasdaq business just saying, "Hey, we're just going to diversify," you know, beyond exchanges? I mean, I, mean the, I, I see the relationship, but it's so. It's, before it's a, I uh, had this moment of. Uh, it, crypto folly where I, we're just I'm just now focused on crypto I used to I started covering market by covering market structure so this is kind of my uh, my jam so exchanges have actually especially equities exchanges have for years been trying to diversify beyond trading revenues because uh, especially equities trading revenues the fees have gone been compressed massively yeah. right so the way they've tried tried to start to make money the LSE as well right they they um um, the, is by becoming tech providers. So they started off, I guess, by providing trading tech technology to other exchanges. So NASDAQ um, has a big business that allows other exchanges around the world, like that provides the platforms for other exchanges. They have data businesses. NASDAQ really has has a very big market surveillance uh, franchise as well, which they also acquired. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense in that in 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 that sphere. They're just moving beyond more more into being a tech company, tech provider, software provider, rather than just a, a company that makes money off of trading fees because I guess they expect that will be compressed more. Think about, you know, free stock trading. Now it's coming everywhere. I mean, they, they, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're different, right? They're not the ones providing the yeah, free yeah, stock yeah, trading yeah. to consumers. Yeah. But, you know, there is, there's the trend towards fee compression, right? And it's interesting because, like, connecting it to crypto, right? We've been thinking also now for a different reason, their crypto exchanges, their volumes have gone down. So the fees have gone down. They're still massively, much higher than they are in equities. But... Do they diversify too as well? Obviously, they don't have the same balance sheet as Nasdaq, but I think it does make sense in that in that sort of trend, you you know, decade long trend of them moving away from. But obviously, it's like a very big deal, and we're not used to seeing deals this big these days, right? It's massive. So, and it also raises questions about if you've got these the exchange owner and the exchange operator owning a whole bunch of other businesses, does that start at some point to create a conflict of interest? Um, does that? I it shouldn't do. But. I, I I I I yeah. If they if you mean if they own the the trading platform someone else yeah, uses if, or if they, yeah exactly or if they start owning elements of the settlement and if you know is that if oh. if you end up with some kind of um, market distortion because the the exchange also owns companies that do a bunch of other things. Yeah, I think they may be, th- in this sense, it's more just rather than owning the, co- they, they own the tech that other companies yes, use. So yeah. I guess then you, maybe you could bring it up. But, you know, it, it's, it. I found it was interesting that they decided to go towards, I think it's more, 
they're not necessarily just trading services, right? It's it's broader, but it is broader, yeah. Yeah, but but you know, it'll it's interesting. I guess the point here is, if you're a shareholder, is like, did we pay too much for this? Like, will it be right, worth exactly. it? Exactly. That's it. That's what stood out for me, right? It's like the the valuation, especially. I think you've already made this point, but I think especially in today's market, right, where it's that little bit more depressed, and we're not used to seeing this as a trend of these big valuations. And I think actually the market sort of reacted maybe more in line, Benjamin, with your point about um, not really seeing how this makes sense. NASDAQ shares tumbled over 10% to a, a, a nearly a one-year low following the deal's announcements. Um, Bobby, what do you what do you think about this one? Does it make a little bit more sense to you? How do you think this is going to play out? I agree with you. I think strategically it makes sense, and the question is about the price, as you just mentioned the stat. Um, but it, it makes sense that they're building a more broader technology uh, platform with deeper relationships. And the question is, how much are you paying for that? Yeah, completely agree. And look, Anna, I mean, I, I guess I'll give the last word to you on this one. I think you, you came across as maybe a little bit more optimistic on this one than the rest of our uh, panel and, and sort of suggested that maybe there is actually more of a coherent strategy than we're possibly giving them credit for. Do you think this is uh, going to play out in a positive way? Do you think um, they'll sort of quell the nerves? I guess I don't know the com- the target company as much to to know. You know, was it worth that buy? I, I just you know from a strategy perspective, it's not out of the blue. Like maybe if you don't follow Nasdaq closely, you'd think, oh, why is an exchange like where people list shares buying like a software? But but they've actually behind the scenes that their tech business. I I don't know how much it accounts for in terms of total amount of their revenue, how much, you know, the technology services and software services account for. But, you know, last time I looked at the earnings, it was getting, I think that the point is to try to rely less and less on the trading fees. And so that sort of fits with with that strategy that that the point is like, is is it worth the price you're paying for it? Especially now that maybe there is cheaper options out there, right? With companies that have, are struggling to raise or, you know, yeah, for sure. I know. Um, so Morningstar analyst Michael Miller said in a client note, of serious reservations about the price NASDAQ have chosen to pay for the asset. But look, the, the diversification point, as you sort of um, lay it out, Anna, makes sense. So I guess one just to uh, keep an eye on as we move forward. Good, good news um, for Tom at Bravo there. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. They're the real winner. Yeah. Um, Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. So, Benjamin, I think you've got one for us this week. So, yes, this was uh, from a publication called Rest of the World. Um, Desperate for dollars, Argentina just gave digital nomads another advantage over locals. Tech nomads earning in US dollars are moving to Argentina, where their salaries afford them better lifestyles than most locals. Around 6,400 Uh, nomads arrive each month, and Buenos Aires has consistently been on the top 10 list of digital nomad destinations compiled by Nomad List, an online resource for the community. As international bank account holders, they're now able to access a better conversion rate while changing US dollars into Argentine pesos, using what the government has termed the foreign tourist dollar. Argentines are not offered such generous terms. Locals get around 250,000 Argentine pesos for every thousand, so 250 pesos for every dollar, while international bank account holders get over double that, um, so uh, 500,100 pesos. 
The preferential exchange rate adds to the purchasing power disparity between foreigners and Argentines who are fighting rising inflation and their local currency's devaluation. So yeah, this is this is sad. Argentina's economy is uh, in a real mess. It's going through serious crises. There's lots of conversations with the IMF. Um, there have been a lot of challenges uh, over the past few years as the, as the government has done things like suppressed st- statistics and so on. So the economy is in a lot of trouble. So you can see the, the t- temptation to earn a little bit of, of hard currency in this way. But it's a slippery slope because if you start giving... Um, wealthy expatriates advantages over nationals that can turn around and bite you very quickly people don't like it when foreigners get privileges that they don't get so i don't think this is very smart um on the part of the argentine government because i think you could easily see a nasty backlash um why should why should foreigners get a better exchange rate really um yeah so it's 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 hard to see that as a as a rational, logical move um, that's going to be popular with um, voters in Argentina. I totally agree. It's uh, it seems to be a case of where trying to attract those people in um, has gone a little bit too far. And actually, my story um, is probably on the opposite end of the spectrum. It comes from City AM with uh, a headline: Oak North boss immigration barriers are threatening the UK's fintech sector. So a lack of talent is threatening to choke off growth in the UK fintech sector and ministers must do more to open up borders to immigration, the boss of digital lender Oak North said today. Speaking at London Tech Week, Rishi Kostler said that the London-based digital bank had itself been dogged by hiring troubles and more routes should be opened up to allow workers to flow into the UK. Oak North was founded by Kostler and Joel Pellman and has swelled to become one of the country's best-known challenger lenders with over 800 staff and a valuation of $2.8 billion in 2019. Kostler said that the UK's approach to nurturing and attracting talent was a, quote, work in progress, and the UK should consider adopting a Canadian model to ensure workers can continue to flow in. So, look, I think Rishi's point here is a really good one that the UK startup sector and I suppose the economy more generally is being held back um, by not having easy access to the right talent. I think there is a material talent gap that's emerging. It's simply not being plugged by the existing visa schemes and, and sort of routes into the country, um, etc. And I, I do think that the longer that's uh, allowed to continue, the, the more damaging that it becomes. Um, so one again, I'm sure that... Um, we'll continue to keep an eye on. Okay, uh, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. Now, this story comes from the Decrypt. Uh, Snoop Dogg's NFT tour pass lets fans, quote, travel the world with him virtually. Rapper Snoop Dogg has launched the Snoop Dogg Passport, an NFT pass that unlocks access to exclusive content tied to his upcoming concert tour. The Passport NFT is currently selling on an Ethereum-backed network for about $43 at the time of recording. The supply is not capped and users may purchase up to 100 passes at a time. The evolving digital tour collectible, that's a quote, will unlock behind-the-scenes footage and content tied to Snoop Dogg's, quote, high school reunion tour with fellow rappers Wiz Khalifa, Warren G, and others. The NFT will also unlock access to merchandise, ticket sales, 
and music playlists. <sighs> Honestly, like I'm a serious broadcaster. I can't keep doing these. Um, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know who to come to. I think it's frankly ridiculous. Um, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the positive one then. You know, I okay. think if, if this is a way of giving fans access to more of what they want, fantastic. And, you know, if NFTs can be used to demonstrate that somebody is actually who they say they are and they're actually entitled to all of the things, brilliant. I mean, we, we talked about, you know, crypto and crypto assets and, you know, the, the amount of sort of fraud and so on that's gone on. Um, hey, this is a positive use of, of, of the technology. And if that means that um, Snoop Dogg fans can get more, get more Snoop, then fantastic. I'm um, um, all in favor. So I, I, I agree with you that there is potentially a use case. And I think, you know, we've seen a massive issue around like ticket touting and all of that sort of stuff. And I think NFT probably has a role to play in addressing some of those problems. I just don't think it's like behind the scenes content and charging people an extra $43. Anna, it, it seems natural to come to you on this. What do you think? I mean, if people want to pay for it, like, I guess the point is, are you doing it because you want to create a market in which people are speculating, buying it to resell, and then it's another different. But if they want to pay a bit more because they're massive fans and for them getting an extra video is worth $43, then, you know, no one's forcing them to do it, right? Like, I, I guess, you know, it's different if you're creating a situation where if you want to have basic access to something, then you need to buy the NFT. But if, if it's like extra... You know, fandom doesn't necessarily make sense to most people. <laughs> think about, you know, stadiums full of grown men crying when other men miss uh, kicking a ball. In a, like That's not the most logical of things, right? But for people that are passionate about their teams, there's nothing more logical than crying if they don't win, right? So it, it's kind of the same thing. And it's interesting to see if it will create more engagement with with the people who buy them. Do we know if they're actually selling? That's my question, right? Are people actually buying them? And they also the like not capped thing, like doesn't it, that not create a sense that it's not that exclusive? If, but I don't know, they will have presumably thought it through more than Completely. That. It also doesn't address any um, issues around touting if you can buy up to 100 at a time, which why would you want to do that? I would love someone to explain I think it's like when Maybe. people line up to buy limited edition sort of watches and stuff and then they resell them like the next day to other people that want them, I guess. But then it's tout, like, I don't know what the, yeah. Ross, I mean, this, this could be your answer to your, you know, your Christmas present dilemma. You could buy these for all of your friends, <laughs> you know, more Snoop for all your friends. For any child that's yet to be born, you can give them as christening gifts oh forever. Oh my gosh, Snoop Dogg NFT collectibles. That's probably not a space I'm going to be getting into anytime soon. But Bobby, what about you? Well, I, I, I yet again find myself Agreeing with everyone, and, and I have to take the moment to say I appreciate Anna's summary of professional sports. I think that that's a <laughs> great recap of a lot of humanity. I have to say that did make me laugh. Um, I have to ask this question, although I always struggle on these questions on this show. Um, I'm going to start with you, Anna. What was your either your first, your last, or your most memorable gig? So my last, last one was I went to see, which shows that I don't get out much now that I have kids. I went to see Adele in Hyde Park a year ago That's almost a good now. One. The first one was probably some like lame teenage thing in Italy because I'm Italian. I'm confessing it now. And a memorable one, I got an alert actually this week from um, Facebook that like all, 
um, like six, seven, something maybe ten years ago, I went to see the Beach Boys at, in Berkeley, and it was quite oh, cool because you think you know old band. They might not. It wasn't all of them. I think some of them were new or like. Right, I'm not sure, but it was great. It was like just like really cool vibe. Everybody was like in their 60s and very happy, and so it was fun. Do you think you'd remember it even better and even more positively if you had uh, an NFT, collectible NFT? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like that's the big thing that I'm missing in my wallet now that I don't have a digital wallet. But if I did have one, I wish I had an NFT about the Beach Boys. Bobby, what about you? What about memorable, memorable gigs? It was it was years ago. There's a huge festival in San Francisco called Outside Lands, and the the headliners uh, so multiple stages, but the headliners on different stages were Paul McCartney uh, at at a very ripe old age, uh, but he was fantastic, and uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, and and a, and a few others. But I those are the two I remember, and they were both fantastic. We're getting some good. Uh, we're getting some good answers, Benjamin. So it's just final word to you now, and the pressure's on. Yeah, I think everyone's going to be enormously disappointed. Um, I'm going to try and uh, sort of close the circle by saying I, I too went to an Adele concert, which was a lot of women in a stadium crying. So I might leave it there. Terrific. And as for me, if you want to know mine, please purchase the fintech insider collectible nft for more information <laughs> and behind the scenes footage um all right that wraps up this week's show thank you so much to today's guests um where can people find out a bit more about you benjamin let's start with you um i'm not sure anyone wants to find out more about me um but uh, you can find out more about the work that, that we do at 11fs and that the team is doing at 11fs.com or i'm benjamin ensor on linkedin perfect anna how about you so obviously my work is on the Bloomberg terminal and Bloomberg.com. And then you can find me on all channels because I'm easily reachable. Excellent. Bobby. Wisedack.com is uh, where, where I spend most of my time. And certainly you can find me on LinkedIn, Bobby Tekken. Excellent. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. And thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. And goodbye. Goodbye.